Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jeremy Shapiro. I'm the research director at ECFR, and I have taken the opportunity of Mark Leonard going on vacation to seize yet again the reins of control of this podcast. We'll see if he gets them back. And with this week, we're going to talk about Europe's climate policy and whether it can survive the war in Ukraine. The EU's transition away from dependency on Russian energy seemed like a huge opportunity to accelerate the green transition. But for some member states, it's clearly not going fast enough. And in the face of rising energy prices and with winter just around the corner, it does seem as if Europe's climate policy is facing some real challenges resulting from the war in Russia. So to discuss this issue, which is actually a very apropos day, it's one of the hottest days ever in Europe. Our listeners can't see, I'm in Washington, D.C., our listeners can't see our guests who are Susie Dennison, Senior Policy Fellow and Head of ECFR's European Power Program, and Simone Tagliapietra, an old friend of ECFR and co-author and Senior Fellow, for some reason I'll never understand, at Bruegel, as well as Adjunct Professor of Energy, Climate, and Environmental Policy at the Universita Cattolica del Sacqua Cuore at Johns Hopkins. They, I have to tell our listeners, they both look very hot um, because it's one of the hottest days ever in Europe. And so probably uh, the best day in history to talk about uh, climate change. I'm in D.C. It's also hot here, but the air conditioning works, which is the American response to climate change. So from the very warm rooms that you're in, I think this is a, it's a useful opportunity to think about the effect of the Ukraine war on, on Europe's climate policy. Since the beginning of the war, I imagine you've had the same experience. I've heard these simultaneously, these two entirely different, entirely contrary hypotheses. The first says that the need for Europe to reduce its dependence on Russian gas means that it will have to accelerate uh, the climate transition and accelerate its transition to renewable fuels. Uh, and that in that sense, this is a real opportunity to do something which was always going to be difficult. But at the same time, I hear that because of the incredible rise in energy prices and inflation, we have seen um, principally since the war began, but even starting before the war began, that consumers are already on edge and they will not stand for uh, further rises. And therefore, governments have had to resort to going back on their climate commitments and bringing back online coal and other things. And this is essentially trashing uh, Europe's climate plans. Uh, I think it would be good to start off by trying to reconcile these things. Are they both true? If not, which one is true? Susie, uh, we'll start with you. You've written, I think, a really useful paper on this, which uh, gets at the complications in the issue. It's called uh, Green Peace it's at the ECFR website. But uh, Susie, can you give us your sense of, this, of where we are? Yeah, sure. I think that at the beginning um, of 
the Russia's war in Ukraine, both of the hypotheses that you set out were possible. But I think that the one that was the scenario that we're seeing play out at the moment is very much that the climate agenda is at risk because of the intense focus from European governments on diversification away from dependence on Russia at basically any cost right now. I think, you know, I'm by nature optimistic, but not particularly hopeful at this point. But I think there are still ways in which European leaders can mitigate that risk to the climate agenda. I think the first thing that we need to see change is that Europeans need to understand the energy crisis as a European crisis. This isn't Germany's energy problem. This isn't France or Italy's panic about how to get through the next winter. This is something that we're all grappling with. And I think that we need to have a kind of a shift in tone around this from the current conversation, which is at its best about solidarity between European member states to kind of help overcome national problems. And we know from the refugee crisis, from the financial crisis, from COVID, how dangerous that framing of the need for solidarity is in a European context. And I think it really needs to shift to an understanding of this as a question of, of European energy sovereignty. We saw earlier this summer that when Germany pushes its ally Canada to circumvent its own sanctions that are in place on Russia in order to repair Nord Stream 1 and keep Russian gas going, clearly we're not in a situation um, where we're sovereign. We need to be live to that. We need to be live to the fact that as autumn gets underway, the terms that Putin's going to put in place on us buying uh, Russian gas are going to get higher and higher and more and more difficult for us to swallow as Europeans. And so we need to be planning for this at a European level and together. I think the second dimension is about the extent to which we've all got to play a part in this. Europeans are hearing really different stories, not just between different member states, but also within countries about um, whether or not they need to tighten their belts, turn Jeremy's air conditioning down over the summer or turn the heating down over the winter, or whether things are going to be all right. You know, if you take the German example, you're hearing both stories from within the same coalition government. And at pan-European level, this is even harder. In July, there will be the this energy saving communication from from the commission and you know so, so the sort of the messaging is there at central level but political leaders aren't really getting behind um, that message that everybody's got to play their part and then finally I think you know the other thing that really has to change is that there has to be a high level of acceptance that in order to get to Jeremy's hypothesis one whereby the current situation turbocharges climate action there's a, there's going to be a need for a big injection um, of funding into boosting renewable sources of energy, cleaner sources of energy within Europe in order to get to the type of setup which was envisaged in the May Repower EU plan from the Commission. And that perhaps there is going to be a need for a common mechanism again. Perhaps we are at that moment again in um, that we always come to in European crises where we have to do whatever it takes in, in, in financing terms. But I think as long as kind of these three points don't move, then the, tra tra the trajectory looks very worrying for the climate agenda. Simona, what do you think? Is it uh, has, has Russia trashed the climate agenda or have they helped it? Well, I think that uh, um, in some 10 years time, we will remember this energy crisis as an accelerator of our green transition. I think we are in a difficult uh, crisis, which is a fossil fuel crisis. I mean, we should consider that we are in Europe where we are 
because of a coincidence of three different shocks. It's not just Russia. On the one hand, we have a sort of long COVID syndrome in global oil and gas markets. During the pandemic, uh, we have uh, underinvested. And once demand has bounced back after the, the end of the lockdowns, namely, you know, in the industrial sector, the demand supply balance in both oil and gas. So that's the first shock. Then the Russian shock, of course. I mean, the weaponization of, uh, of uh, gas by, by Putin as uh, since uh, September 2021, 20, uh, actually. I mean, this, this uh, <laughs> didn't start with the invasion, right? I mean, this manipulation of the uh, European gas market by Russia has started last summer. They have been playing yo-yo with our gas market for, for quite some time now. And uh, this already put uh, our uh, energy prices situation in a very difficult uh, spot uh, indeed last uh, fall. So I think uh, that, of course, uh, increased in, in importance as a situation when in May, June, uh, they started to interrupt the flows to certain countries and then, of course, the big reductions to Germany and Italy. But this is now a, a consolidated story. And then we are also having uh, some unfortunate circumstances in Europe, like, you know, it happens that half of the nuclear uh, fleet in France is, uh, is off uh, because of uh, maintenance issues, again, also related to the pandemic. Uh, we have a major uh, lack of water in, in Italy, uh, compromising the hydropower output. So we are in the middle of a very difficult situation. But uh, if you look at the main drivers of the crisis, this is due to fossil fuels. So I think that everybody in Europe now understands that for an importing continent of fossil fuels like Europe, the energy of freedom, as Habeck, the uh, German economy minister, said uh, a few months ago, is renewable energy, is energy efficiency, are green solutions. Now, our problem is the time dimension. We have a problem in the next months that uh, uh, we cannot solve with green solutions. Uh, we have a problem this winter uh, for which we need to deploy all possible options and it happens that these options are brown. We need to burn more coal. We need to reopen the coal-fired power plants in order to consume less gas. And we will need, by the way, to reduce demand. And uh, that's exactly what Susie said, uh, but it's politically... It has proven to be politically difficult, right? But uh, the, the supply alternatives are diversification of gas supplies plus greater utilization of coal. I don't see these as, a, as being contradictory to the green agenda because I am perfectly happy with Europe having to burn more coal this winter if at the same time we are putting in place an acceleration of our green agenda, which means namely simplifying legal procedure, doing fast-tracking of the permitting processes for renewable energy projects, which is what in Europe is hindering the rollout of solar and wind energy solutions. It can take six years, nine years to get the permits to build a wind park in Europe, right? So, I mean, this is unacceptable. So, if we seize this occasion to simplify, to make easier in Europe to roll out renewable energy projects as the repower use strategy of the Commission has incentivized countries to do, then we might get out of this situation in the medium term 
with an accelerated deployment of renewables. And even if for one winter or two we burn more coal, well, I mean, after all, I don't think that makes a difference. We always have to think of energy policy as a triangle, security, competitiveness, and sustainability. States, of course, prioritize energy security. That's sort of the main task of the Leviathan, right? To provide security, energy security. So it's clear that if security gets compromised, states must intervene with all possible options. I fully understand that. But I think that in the medium-long term, in Europe, there is a clear awareness that uh, our future should be green, also because that will have uh, a geopolitical benefit for, for Europe. Because today is Russia, tomorrow might be another country that plays with energy supplies in a geopolitical manner, right? So we should uh, be aware of this. And by the way, and then I conclude, I think this is a lesson for Europe to stop being naive. We have been naive on so many things concerning our uh, security of supply. We have allowed Russia to get uh, to the predominant position it uh, used to play on gas, uh, which was frankly unacceptable, something that, for example, China would never allow uh, an energy supplier to become so important. You know? And I think we should now learn the lesson for the green transition itself. Because we happen to be very dependent on raw materials, green tech, etc., namely from China. So I think uh, this should be uh, uh, really uh, an occasion to, to, to think that we need to take this geopolitics of energy more seriously. And we cannot just hope that, uh, you know, uh, supplies, supply chains will always work properly. And we therefore need to be a little bit more cautious about diversification and reshoring as we are currently intending to do. Okay. An end of naivete might be even harder than a climate transition, but it seems worth, it seems worth aiming at. I would note that Yanko Ortel has written a paper uh, for us over this, in the spring about the potential problem of green supply chains, which gets at the point that you make that you're making that naivete that uh, dependence doesn't end just because you solve the Russian fossil fuel problem as hard as it is. Um, so, I mean, the, essentially what you're saying, Simone, is that the, the short term isn't that great, but the long term can be OK if we do the right things. The issue with that, of course, is that the long term is nothing but a series of short terms concatenated against each other, uh, next to each other. And so the question, I guess, is, I direct this at Susie, is uh, is what Simona says needs to happen happening in terms of uh, while the Europe is trying to solve its problem of next winter, is it taking any of the measures uh, to uh, accelerate the green transition that he's hoping for and if it isn't, what are the problems? I mean, I think, you know, there are obviously some green shoots, pun intended, in terms of the development of the renewable sector um, within Europe. And, you know, the work that we did that the, the Greenpeace paper that you mentioned was based on a survey of 27 member states and the kind of the way that policymakers are thinking about this in different capitals did throw up many interesting examples of cooperation between governments with the private sector around solar, wind, um, hydrogen projects. And so, you know, I, 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 I entirely take the point that Europeans know that long term, this is the direction that we need to, need to be going in. My concern is both kind of the urgency of that in the current moment, because Europe is still in panic mode um, about this winter. 
And there is a kind of a, a political sense in which we'll deal with the long term when we come to it. And you can see that not only in the kind of the measures that are being taken around um, energy solutions, but also in managing the socioeconomic response. You know, lots of governments putting in place the kinds of subsidisation that just isn't sustainable over the long term, which kind of um, all adds to this sense that we're not facing up to the, the realities um, of the transition. But the other thing that worries me about the relationship between the current moment and the long term is what this is all saying outside Europe. So, you know, we were already after COP26 in quite um, a tense moment between G7 countries and the global south around um, the extent to which the developed world was kind of sharing the responsibility on climate financing, issues like loss and damage and so on. But I think that that we're, we're kind of pouring fuel on the fire, the way in which we're taking very much a kind of me first approach to the energy crisis. And, you know, in in going and being willing to pay whatever gas prices are being asked for um, from alternative suppliers to Russia, we're contributing to um, prices going up globally, which is hard for other countries to manage. We are, in some cases, taking away finite supplies from other countries that wanted to use um, LNG. And that might have been kind of, in their case, a more sustainable um, solution than, than the other alternatives. And so I think that there are kind of very practical ripple effects of what we're doing globally. Which, which means that, that we're slowing down um, the global movement towards decarbonisation. And then there's also the just the kind of hypocrisy of us claiming to be a global leader, but then when the chips are down, reverting back to the brown fuel options, as, as Simone called them. Um, I think it's going to be very hard for us to kind of head into COP27 with any kind of moral authority if we don't begin to kind of put measures in place. I mean, there's no reason, for example, why when we go to Algeria, and set up new long-term gas deals, we couldn't sort of agree between Europeans that there needs to be a certain proportion of the deal that's about renewable um, energy over the longer term to incentivize the growth of solar energy in in these countries that that we're buying gas from currently, where there are opportunities. You know, these are all um, relationships that we're going to need as part part of our own green transition too. And so I think we could be thinking a lot more strategically about how our actions um, engage with the global picture, given that we haven't got the furthest to go in terms of decarbonization in Europe. Yes, yeah, Simone, I'd like, to, I'd like you to sort of uh, respond to that and see if, you're, see if it, your optimism can withstand it, but uh, your long-term optimism. But um, also to, to think about this question that Susie sort of put on the table in her first intervention, um, which is this idea that a lot of the problems of European energy diplomacy and its relationship to climate policy uh, comes from the fact that the European governments are, in essence, competing against each other, um, or at least not cooperating with each other, and so going to Algeria separately and sort of bidding each other up. And I'm wondering if you're seeing, if, if in addition to the problems that Susie was, in, was looking at, you, you would agree that 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 there needs to be a sort of Europeanization of this policy and whether that is at all in the offing. I think uh, this is the core question, um, namely looking at this crisis from a Brussels perspective, right? Because uh, after the oil shock, the first oil shock, we created the International Energy Agency. Coming closer in time after the, you know, the great financial crisis, we in Europe uh, set up the banking union. When uh, uh, Russia invaded Crimea back in 2014, uh, there was the idea of 
creating the energy union you remember that was the big project uh, of uh, the uh, the juncker commission which failed right i mean we didn't create an energy union indeed we are where we are because certain countries and uh, okay let's name germany uh, didn't care at all about the diversification efforts just uh, sit back relax and enjoy their flights with uh, with russia and even build Nord stream 2 so so if you take two countries poland and germany poland is a country that took at the time uh, the diversification issue seriously and indeed now poland lives without russian gas with no drama because they have the lng plant they have the baltic pipe with uh, with norway Germany didn't take diversification uh, investments, didn't build an energy terminal, etc. And now Germany is in the most difficult position in Europe. So uh, we didn't manage at the time to, to go fully in, into this Europeanization of energy policy because certain countries were still looking at Russia. Now this is gone forever. So I think we should seize this profound moment of disruption to think about uh, a real European energy policy. So I fully agree with what uh, Susie said before. I mean, we make Europe out of crisis. This is the energy crisis we can seize, let's say, to build a European approach. Is it happening, though? Is that is that happening? I just, I don't see very much I evidence think, of that. It's been a lot of, there's I been think, a lot of crisis, but not much uh, uh, response. I think we are going, uh, you know, there is a sense of direction you know, the creation of the energy platform, all these, uh, I mean... But isn't isn't here where the short-term sort of gets into in the way of the long-term? Because even though everybody would sort of recognize that they need to go in the direction that you're talking about in the long-term, in the short-term, they're fighting with each other over fossil fuel, and that's preventing them from taking the, the sort of Europeanization steps that are necessary for the long-term. Fully agree. I think there is a sense of which should be the direction and there are steps uh, to go in that direction. But, uh, you know, we have a little problem that uh, everything here must be agreed by the member states because energy remains a national competence. This is Article 194 of the Treaty on the Function of the EU. And countries are still struggling to get these, you know, more competence to the EU level. So it will be an historical struggle for the Commission to try to gather more competences on the energy platform for the uh, for the joint purchasing, uh, for the demand reduction. So the big uh, um, energy plan of July is about gas demand reduction with the Commission asking to have a more coordination role also for this uh, uh, important policy that we need to undertake ahead of the winter. But here we need to go beyond the national resistances. And that's certainly difficult. But look at Germany. Germany is a country that uh, opposed since the very beginning the idea of the joint uh, platform no? for the purchase of gas. After they themselves struggled to get the contract with Qatar, Germany is now in a much more different position, more open to uh, to see this mechanism being uh, developed at the EU level. And I think uh, this is a sign that things can move in, in that direction. Also because, and here we need to put energy into the broader economic context, I think there is a clear recognition that the end of cheap gas for Europe is gone. Many of our industries were built on a competitive advantage, which was cheap Russian gas. Once the cheap Russian gas is not there anymore and gas prices are, are going to be higher for longer in Europe, 
we might have a problem. We might need to rethink part of our industries. And I think uh, this needs to be part of this conversation because what we are experiencing is not just uh, a redesign of uh, Europe energy map, but potentially it's we are also redesigning our industrial structure because historically industries are, have always been built, you know, following certain energy endowments, coal, hydropower, or cheap gas, like in Germany. So the, the, the very structure of comparative advantage may be changing. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's when you can reinvent yourself. That's when I think also this issue of the energy partnership with uh, third countries, uh, neighboring countries is very important. No, I fully agree that uh, so far it's about securing molecules for the next winter, basically. But the idea that, for example, we will not be able to produce all the green hydrogen we need and we need to import it, this from uh, neighboring countries is also part of what we wrote together, Jeremy, at the time in that paper. No, And I think uh, we are going in that direction to have this kind of new, broad, more broad energy partnerships with these countries. You are my touchstone of optimism, Simone. I'm, I'm going to choose to believe you. Um, and maybe in that regard, we're... we're, we're, we're we're running a little long, but um, since we're changing the entire, not just the climate, but the entire industrial structure, maybe we can take a little bit more than 30 minutes. And I think, Susie, I was sort of impressed in your paper that confronted with these dilemmas, you had some ideas about how um, there could be leadership on this issue from certain member states. So I was wondering if you could expound on how you think that this Europeanization that is so sort of difficult given the, the competitive, the short-term competitive dynamics could come about. Yeah, I mean, I think what we what we saw from that policymaker survey is that people are reasonably satisfied with the coordination on the climate agenda that's coming from the European Commission. But what we're talking about here is is thought leadership, is a change of mindset, and that's not something that we can expect to come from Brussels. What we picked up on through this um, this work was deep disappointment in what we've had so far from from the German coalition government. I think there was a kind of a sense at the beginning of the year that a coalition with the Greens um, within it, we could expect, you know, a kind of uh, a Zeitenwender when it came to thinking about energy as well. And that hasn't been forthcoming. And, um, you know, there were kind of gripes on that from various angles uh, to do with hypocrisy in the kind of the messaging versus the way that Germany consumes energy um, uh, from outside, a kind of gripes about mixed mixed messaging and a focus, a kind of very pragmatic approach in the energy crisis to just securing in in the near term and so on. And on the other hand, what, what we could see within that, and I would link this to the idea of um, the need for an understanding of the energy question as, as one of sovereignty, is, is, is a kind of an opening for France as a bridge builder on that front. In terms of the way that France is thought of as a bridge between creditor and debtor countries when it comes to the questions about how we finance the investment that we need um, in scaling up clean sources. France is a bridge because of its allies on the taxonomy debate around the definition of what, what constitutes green energy for investment purposes uh, around the sort of the group of states um, that are pro-nuclear that crosses a lot of the kind of traditional fractures within EU politics and so on. And so there is um, a kind of a potential in Macron's second term for him to sort of take the sovereignty agenda to the energy question and and try to um, to Europeanize thinking about that. So we have to count on Emmanuel Macron. I don't see any flaws in that plan. So there's only one thing left to do on this podcast, and it is our bookshelf section. 
think I forgot to warn you guys about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. So the question is, what is on your bookshelf? What are you reading? And given that it's summer, I'm, I hope, although I suspect it's not true, that you're reading something a little bit more engaging than the recent European Commission report on energy transition. But we'll see. Simone, what's on your bookshelf? Well, I didn't know about this question, but luckily I have a book on my desk right now, which is How the World Really Works by Baklav Zmil, and is a scientist guide to our past, present, and future. He looks at the history of civilization through the history of energy, of uh, industry, and food supply chains development, we would say. And it's extremely fascinating because it tells you Uh, you know, how technological innovation basically works, plays out, uh, what is the role of policy and governmental direction in this uh, technical change. And it also tells a lot about the role of energy in shaping uh, the international order. Wow, that's a big think book. All right. I like the way you you work, even in the hot weather. Uh, Okay, Susie. What's on your bookshelf? So I genuinely am in summer mode. And I'm so I've started reading Isabel Allende's latest book, Violetta, from this year. I love I love her as an author, but I've been a bit disappointed so, so far because I was hoping for escapism. And the story set is set in the 1920s um, in Chile. So, you know, worlds away from my current experience, but it opens with a world that's being rocked by a global pandemic, that's dealing with the aftermath of war in Europe. And, and and there's just sort of all too much familiarity about it. So I'm struggling to, yeah, to get the light read that I was hoping for. But it's still well written. It's very, it's very hard to find escapism these days, isn't it? Well, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that what's on my bookshelf is the same, the same book that this, the last time I did this podcast. Not exactly the same book, but I, I've been reading the, um, the Neapolitan novels, which is a, a set of four novels by Elena Ferrante about... Uh, yeah, mostly about sort of life and female friendship in Naples in 1950s and 60s. So there's four novels, and uh, I've now worked my way through two of them, and uh, I'm going to get through the last two by the end of the summer, I swear. Uh, so that's what's on my bookshelf. We will put a link to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, and I'm absolutely certain that you did, Please tell Mark Leonard and also let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or ours. But above all, hopefully, please give us a good rating and review. Five stars would not be too many on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. But for now, from Susie Dennison, Simone Tagliapietra, and myself, Jeremy Shapiro, it is goodbye. Guys, please stay cool and remember that the researcher for this podcast is Lucy Happenthal and the editor of this week's episode is Adam Teufel. Thank you all. Mm-hmm.